Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380 at 3 o'clock p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, those of you following the show will know that we spent the last four weeks uh, not talking about the same often depressing cultural issues that we usually go over, but instead we, we took a break over the Christmas holidays to, to look at uh, wonderful stories and great storytellers. We took a look at children's literature so that people could be reminded that when we say culture, we don't necessarily mean uh, a depressing thing. But with the new year underway, I want to get back into uh, having some important discussions uh, about issues that each and every one of us should be familiar with. And so the woman I'm, I'm interviewing today actually is an author as well, but her book is much, much different. I found her book actually on a road trip between Calgary and, and Chilliwack, British Columbia. Uh, the book is called Scarlet Lady, and it details the career of a Texas abortion provider who later left the abortion industry and now uh, uses her influence to try and save uh, babies from abortion and to try expose the abortion industry for what it actually is. Now, her book is, is quite chilling because she explains how the people inside the clinic and inside the industry are really abortion salespeople. It uh, really brought home for me that the sexual revolution is, is like no other revolution, or is like any other revolution. And blood is shed, and, and the carpetbaggers and the capitalists are the first to show up. And the same is true with abortion. She talks about how uh, they handed out faulty condoms. She, they t- she talks about how they pushed sex education, because if you could get people to engage in risky sexual behavior, then as the result of that, uh, the abortion clinic would eventually reap the financial rewards. So I want to welcome uh, Carol Everett to the show, and I, and I hope that you'll, you'll be as informed as I was by a discussion that's, that's often very difficult for her to have. So we'd like to welcome Carol Everett, and, and we hope that you'll be able to really take something away from, from what she has to say. How did you get involved in the abortion industry originally? I became involved in the abortion industry in a desperate attempt to justify my own abortion. Two weeks after Roe v. Wade... I found myself pregnant, third pregnancy. It was not convenient. I was married. Um, my husband said, you know, abortion is the answer. I didn't think about it very much, and no one said stop. And the minute I had that abortion, I knew I had murdered my baby. And then where do you go from that? You can't share that with your best friend or your mother. But what I learned was I could stuff those feelings and tell other women how great abortion was. And it was easy to evolve into the abortion industry, selling abortions on a daily basis. And then it evolved into more than that. It became a numbers game. It became a money game. How hard was it to get involved? Because as I understand, you eventually ended up running a clinic. Well, it wasn't hard for me. I worked for a man um, who sold, I sold medical supplies. I was one of the first women salespeople in Dallas. Um, some people will remember that era. And... Um, I was calling on physicians every day, and we had this account that came online with the medical supply company that was very profitable. He investigated, found it to be an abortion clinic, decided to open his own, and before we knew it, he had four abortion clinics operating in the Dallas-Fort Worth, well, the Texas area. And the day came when he said to me, sell abortions as you go, selling medical supplies, I'll give you a $25 commission. I did that for a while, and then he called and said, will you come in and run the clinic? And that's when I evolved into the abortion industry 
saw the potential to change the sales techniques on the telephone because the people that answer the telephone in abortion clinics are telemarketers. They sell over the phone. Mm-hmm. They're the pregnancy experts to the caller. She buys based on no physical exam, no test, because they're the experts. And I more than doubled his business in just a couple of months. So but he wouldn't share that money with me. <laughs> what was that process of selling abortions like? Because especially since you, you just described your own abortion and the, and the sense of regret you felt immediately afterward, how did you sell the abortions to the women who were calling and at the same time downplaying any regret they might feel afterwards? I never identified with my own regret. I was in complete denial. I never told a woman that I had been bad enough to have an abortion myself. I never shared that with one human until 13 years after the event. But it was that desperate attempt, if she's okay, I'm okay. But all I did was change the sales techniques on the telephone, and abortion became the only answer. We weren't really counseling. We were telemarketers. We called them telephone counselors, Mm -hmm. but it went something like this. The girl would call and say, I think I may be pregnant. And they still go on the Internet, but I'm convinced that when they're ready to make a decision, they pick up the phone and call. Right. And she would, we would say, we can take care. The script was, we can take care of that problem. No one needs to know. And then we ask, what's the first day of your last normal period? The girl figures that date if she doesn't know it, gives it to the so-called counselor who puts it on a wheel that's actually used to calculate the birth date of the baby. But she didn't talk about birth date or baby. Uh-huh. She said, you're eight weeks pregnant. Now think about that. What did she do? She just confirmed this young woman's worst fear, and she started the process of selling this abortion procedure. Right. You'd think the girl would say, stop, how can you tell me that over the telephone? But remember, this is the pregnancy expert. That seed is planted, that fear is confirmed. The next question is, is this good news or bad news? And, the, the of course, it's bad news or she wouldn't be calling an abortion clinic. Right. So when she answers bad news, again, she's reassured, we can take care of your problem, no one needs to know, and now... The get your money, come on in. But they have to identify the fear. Now, why do they identify the fear? They use that fear to resell that abortion clinic anytime that girl moves away. That abortion, not mm-hmm. clinic, that abortion. Mm-hmm. Your parents don't have to know. Uh, you don't have to miss drill team. You don't have to miss work. And soon the girl will just spit out the fear, not realizing she's just given them everything that they need to confirm that abortion is the answer. And then they talk about money. It's $500. Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't panic. First of all, now they say you may qualify for up to a 40% grant for your abortion. And they do a little test with her, of course, go through, the, the ask the questions to see if she might qualify. And then one, uh, Rupert, uh, one foundation in the United States will fund up to 40% of a woman's abortion if she qualifies to be low income. Mm-hmm. And if not, go get your money, borrow your money, tell your friends you'll get a job, pay them back in a few months. There are no free abortions. If abortions are so good for women, why aren't they free? And then the next thing is, Jonathan, they've got to get her in as fast as possible. Right. If you leave her out there very long, it's the same thing we see today in our pregnancy centers. If she's booked too far out, she goes somewhere else. But you get her in as soon as possible because you don't want her to have time to process it. You don't want her to have a support system that comes along and says, hey, wait a minute, you can have this baby. Just get her on in. And, you know, she's greeted at the door. She's rushed back to watch her own pregnancy test become positive or negative. And if it's positive, they grab her on that bony part of her elbow, squeeze to get her attention and say, I'm so sorry. Do you want to just take care of it right now? Mm -hmm. And far too many of those girls rush up front 
and say yes. But you know a high percentage are not pregnant. And what do you do with a girl that you paid as much to get into the clinic as you did for a pregnant one if she's not pregnant? Mm -hmm. You try to prove she's pregnant. So you say, this test is not sensitive enough to pick up an early pregnancy. I know you want to know for sure today. Why don't we take you back for the sonogram and let's be certain. Mm -hmm. You check all the way down the hall being certain she doesn't read sonograms for a living. Today we've all seen a sonogram, but we don't really know what an early sonogram looks like. So you get her on the table, you find a blob. You could put a man on a table. We all have blobs in our abdomen, gases. You find a little blob, you lock the screen in place, you flip it around and say, see there, there it is, you're pregnant. She doesn't know what a sonogram would look like at this point. So the next question, of course, is do you have your money? Can you do it today? But this is the sad thing. On that woman who's not pregnant, that abortionist scrapes out more of the lining of the uterus than the young woman that's not pregnant. Right. So it's far more dangerous to her future fertility, probably, than an abortion. What you're describing is basically a, a reproductive right to push for money, but not so much for the reproductive justice, with air quotes around that, that the, the pro-choice crowd talks about so often. Within the abortion industry, uh, are the people working within the abortion industry uh, you know, crass entrepreneurs, or do they consider themselves reproductive justice warriors, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. You've got some do-gooders in there who are really trying to help women. You've got women who had abortions who are justifying their own. You've got incest and rape survivors in there who are hurt. But whatever it is inside that abortion clinic, just look at them. They are hurt people, mm. hurt individuals, gritted teeth, clenched fists. They're not happy people. They're hurting people, and we need to see them as that, except for the grace of God, there goes Carol Everett. Mm-hmm. And so I try to see them in a different way. But the other thing we must remember as we go about this is there are two kinds in there. There are the greedy people who are making money at the top like I was, and then there are people at the bottom who are the do-gooders. But remember this. They never sell life at any point. They don't talk about continuing the pregnancy at all. They never talk about adoption. They never talk about parenthood. They only speak of abortion. So regardless of what they are, they're selling their product. You said before that there were different ways of ensuring you could make these girls repeat customers. What were those? Well, we wanted to be certain they liked us, and, of course, we were nice to them, but we passed out defective condoms to the boys. We didn't buy the best condoms, you know. We bought seconds or defective condoms, and then when the girls came in, for their abortion, we gave them a pack of birth control pills. We told them to start taking them on Saturday. That way they'd never have a pill on the weekend. And we passed out low-dose birth control pills we knew must be taken effective at the same time every day in order to provide a level of effectiveness. We knew most girls would not take them accurately, mm-hmm. and we knew that she would become pregnant again. And actually, those are the ones we went to schools and passed out, too. The low-dose birth control pills we knew the girls would get pregnant on because our goal was three to five abortions between the ages of 13 and 18 from every young woman. How often was that successful? Very successful, over 50%. Right now, there uh, I saw one woman, one girl who had her ninth abortion. You know, we, we became friends with some of those women. We had one woman that was having an affair, and she would get pregnant to get a mink coat or a diamond ring. Sadly, we heard a lot of those stories, and now with almost a 50% repeat rate across the nation, abortion is a method of birth control for many. 
Would you say that you know, giant abortion corporations like Planned Parenthood employ the same tactics when they pushed sex education, uh, when when they pushed contraception and birth control? Now, of course, you say there are some uh, you know so-called do-gooders in that bunch, but is that part of their business model or is that part of their ideology? I think it's part of the ideology at the top, but of course the people who are actually doing it don't understand that. Most of them are the do-gooders, but you've got to remember this. Ask yourself what Planned Parenthood pushes when they go into a, uh, a school. Go online, look at their teen wire, look at their websites, look what they're telling these kids they can do. They are now talking about perversion and all sorts of sick sexual acts now. Then they didn't do it, but the truth of the matter is they are telling them to experiment younger and younger. And uh, we know they're passing out condoms in some schools in New Jersey as early as seven, seven years old. Those kids don't need to know anything about that. They have a book now for two-year-olds. What do two-year-olds need to know about sex? Planned Parenthood has a let's get pregnant agenda, but you're never going to find it written down and no one ever is ever going to admit it. It's just part of who and what they are. But look at what they do understand what they do, and then ask yourself why in the world they do it. They never talk about abstinence. When they talk about abstinence, they say, oh, you should abstain. Abstinence is the best way, but you're not going to do it, so here's how to have safe sex. Anytime anyone talks about safe sex or passes out condoms or passes, even talks to kids with both genders present is not trying to stop sexual activity. They're trying to promote it. What sort of things did you see inside the abortion clinics that, if you could, you would you would show to the public? I would show them that um, they can't possibly use sterile instruments if they have 50 patients in one day. They're working two abortionists who want to do 10 to 12 abortions an hour. They may start with sterile instruments, but there is no way that you can wash those instruments at a rate of 10 to 12 an hour and turn them around and cool them off in time for them to reuse them. You see, it takes, um, when let's say, the first abortion, and they bring that into Central Supply. The sup Central Supply tech has to check the baby's body parts to be sure all the parts are there, because if not, the doctor will have to go back in. Then she will wash the instruments, she will wrap the instruments, put them in the sterilizer, bring them up to 270 degrees for 20 minutes. And when she does that, then after you let the steam out, which takes a few minutes, you have to let them cool. And I've seen doctors take hot instruments and use a pad to dilate the woman's cervix. Now, he was burning that woman's cervix because those instruments were so hot he couldn't hold them with his own hand. And then after a while, they just give up because 20 to 24 abortions an hour with 21 sets of instruments, there's no way. And so what happens is then they resort to something like Cydex and after they use something like Cydex that you just soak them in and they can't possibly soak them for 20 minutes to get them sterile, they just clean them. So abortion clinics operate behind that veil of privacy. They do not operate as any other physician's office or clinic. Therefore, they are not subject to the standards that any insurance company would require, such as Medicare standards, and that's how insurance is paid. Since they're a cash business, they don't get insurance, they're not qualified for those standards, and they're operating outside the limits of any other standard surgical facility. Women are not protected, and I have great questions about what's happening with things like AIDS and all, even herpes. What are they doing inside those clinics?
typically speaking, your, you know, your average pro-choice member of the public will say and, and probably actually believe that the baby being removed is is just a clump of cells or just a, a clump of fetal tissue, as we've been hearing from Planned Parenthood a lot uh, recently. What does it actually look like? As early as an abortion can be performed, it has the baby has to be reconstructed to be certain that it's all there. Now, think about that. Six weeks, they have to be sure the little head's there and then the little limbs are there. Yes, they may be paraffin-like, but they're there. Translucent, but they're there, and you have to check. And as they get older and larger, of course, the muscle structure is more is much stronger. But at every level, you have to be certain that every baby's body part has been removed. And when they're 12 weeks old, you reconstruct them. You reconstruct a baby and leave it on an underpad right there to be certain that you got it all. What was it like to actually see a, a baby after an abortion? They're always destroyed. Their baby's body parts are always destroyed, unless they're a second or third trimester abortion that's so strong it won't come apart. And some of those will not come apart. So you're left with um, a head that will come off the body at, say, 32 weeks. And, you know, people think abortions are only in the first three months. Abortions can be completed through all nine months of pregnancy, not because of Roe v. Wade, but because of, because of Doe v. Bolton, the companion case to Roe. The case heard the very same day that says for the health of the mother, an abortion can be completed through all nine months of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we could just say, okay, talk to me. How would your life be if you had continued this pregnancy? And they would say, horrible, and there it is, the emotional reason to kill a baby as far into the pregnancy as the mother wants. How do people react upon seeing this? Because one of the things that, that's interesting is I, I've heard former abortion workers, uh, you know, give stories like the story Abby Johnson says when she saw a baby basically disintegrate before her eyes in the ultrasound. That's what did it. But what you're describing to me is, is a process whereby you see the babies being pieced back together. After seeing that, what is it that allows you to remain in denial? You tell yourself you're helping that woman. You know it's wrong, but you tell yourself that you were helping that woman. And so you just go around and say, and, and, and when one of my people would have some sort of attack, when they'd see something that was difficult, I'd say, remember, you helped the woman, you helped the woman. Mm-hmm. And that was our mantra. That's what we said. Did it ever impact the people inside the clinic, seeing the, the results of, of abortion that, you know, quite frankly, usually only they see and the public doesn't see? I had one woman walk out on me very early when I was barely in there. She worked in the first clinic I worked in, and she was the central supply technician. She was the one that reconstructed the babies all the time, put them down in the disposal, and cleaned the instruments. And she came in one morning and said, I can't do it anymore. I had a nightmare last night. Those babies were sitting on that sink with their little legs crossed, looking like cherubs, waving at me, and I can't be part of killing another baby. And she walked out. I've always admired that woman on this side. At least she stood for what she believed. Right. And normally we paid them so much money that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't make that much money anywhere else so they'd stay with us, but she didn't care. Right. She didn't care. She stood for what she believed. If you had a chance on national TV or national radio just to tell people a few things based on your experience and you could be sure they believed you, what would you tell them? I don't think you have to ask. If you'd, 
I don't think you have to trust that they believe you. I believe we ask them questions. Why do you never hear a pro-choice person talk about continuing the pregnancy at any time? Why do they never, ever, ever um, talk about adoption or parenting? And what would they say if you talk to them? Why do they have clenched fists and clenched teeth? Why is the abortion industry so angry? And why are they so adamant? If they're making so much money, why are they taking over $500,000 every year from our government? Why in the world can they not talk about what's being seen inside those rooms? You see, what I've learned, Jonathan, is they will no longer debate us. They even admit it's a baby. You can't get a high-level person to debate you on the on the pro-choice side. They no longer will debate us. Mm-hmm. They know they're killing babies and will admit it if you ask them. And I think we don't tell people because they don't listen when you tell them. But when you ask them to check and ask themselves questions, that's when people start looking. And I think it's time for us to start asking those tough questions. Do you think that there's been a shift in in the public's perception of abortion over the last 25 years? Absolutely. And it did not happen the way we thought it would happen. But the Planned Parenthood videos of selling babies' body parts astounded America. Now, the thing that bothers me is this. Will it be something like 9-11 that we walk away from and forget, or will we remember that they are killing over a million babies in this country every year? What are we going to do about it? Uh And we were unsuccessful in defunding Planned Parenthood. What will we do the next time? And I will tell you this. If Christians don't start voting, this country is gone. We have to stand up. We have to be the moral answer because there's no hope for this country without us. One final question. What was the catalyst for you realizing what abortion was and leaving the industry for good? Well, it's really very simple. I was ready to be a millionaire. $25 per abortion. We did uh, $545 the last month. Six, $525. I'll get my numbers right. $545. $13,625 last month. My plan was to be a millionaire, but the only way I could be a millionaire was to sell 40,000 abortions a year. We had two abortion clinics surrounding the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We needed three more, and they would uh, pay for themselves in the first month. They would be cash cows after that. But in order to open three more in a year, it was going to be tough, and we had to all work together. So we called in a business counselor to help us get ourselves together. And um, he started. He forced us to agree to meet with him for an hour a week for four weeks. He would not tell us how much he was going to charge us. He just said, we'll meet, we'll talk, and then we'll move forward. And when I sat down with this man, he was so very different. I'd never met anyone like him. He um, didn't run around on his wife. He uh, didn't smoke. He didn't chew. He didn't cuss. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. And finally, I don't know why till this day, but I asked him if he was a preacher, and he said yes. And I said, what are you doing in this situation? He said, God sent me. And he went on to say, you know, my deacons and I have been praying for some time. We believe there's someone inside this abortion clinic that God wants out. And we're going to be leaving in 30 days. And honestly, I picked out the person I wanted him to take with him when he left. Mm -hmm. But he didn't stop there. He went on. He said, you know, God loves you, Carol. He knows you can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. I tithed on all that money. And he said, Carol, you can't buy your way to heaven. But because God loves you so much, he made a way of escape for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to walk the face of the earth, to live that sin-free life and to die on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. And by the simple act of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, your life can change. I honestly prayed that prayer to shut that man up. But when I went back to the abortion clinic that day, 
They were not dancing in the front door. They were coming in that front door crying. I'd never seen that before. I started sitting down with the women, talking them out of having an abortion. But at the end of that day, I was not saying, isn't this great I saved three babies today? I was saying I lost $75. Money, money, money. Uh And I fell to my knees inside that abortion clinic and prayed a heart prayer. Lord, if there is a Lord, if you don't want me in here, hit me over the head with a two-by-four. And the two-by-four was that we were caught attempting to do abortions on women who were not pregnant. They sent their reporters to the doctor to be certain they weren't pregnant, wired them for sound, sent them in, and caught us red-handed attempting to do abortions on women who were not pregnant. And uh, that was my answer to prayer, and I walked out. Didn't walk out a happy person, but I walked out an angry, hurting woman that God has transformed and is still working on. He has not given up on me yet. So, Well, Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for so much for being interested in doing this, and thank you for all you do to keep truth out there. Certainly. Remember, remember we win. We're the only side having babies. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, that was former Texas abortion provider Carol Everett, who now works in the pro-life movement to reverse the work of the abortion industry and to fight as hard as she can for the lives of pre-born babies. We really appreciated her coming on and sharing her testimony with us, and we hope that all of you will join us again next week, Thursday, for another fascinating interview. Thanks so much, and we hope you'll have a great weekend.